Welcome to PostStatus Draft, the official podcast for PostStatus, a website with news and information for WordPress professionals. Today, I'm joined by Diane Kinney, the co-author of Real World Freelancing. Diane has been doing client work as a solo practitioner for 15 years after a successful career in the corporate world. We talk about many of the challenges and opportunities for self-employed consultants, and she's full of great advice. If you enjoy this podcast, you can get a lot more quality news and analysis from the PostStatus Club multiple times per week. Check out our current club members, site partners, and join the club on our website at poststatus.com slash club. You'll be joining more than 700 wonderful club members, and you'll never miss important WordPress news again. Also check out PostStatus Publish, the conference that we're putting on in Philadelphia on December 1st. It's a one-day conference for PostStatus members. It's very accessible, and you can learn more about it at poststatus.com slash publish. It's different than any conference you've ever been to, and I think you'll really like it. Today, I'd also like to feature one of our partners, Yoast. Yoast SEO Premium gives you 24-7 support from a dedicated support team and extra features like a redirect manager, tutorial videos, and integration with Google Webmaster Tools. Go to yoast.com for more information, and thanks to Yoast for being a PostStatus partner. Now, here's our show. Hey, everybody. I'm Brian, and I'm the editor of PostStatus. Today, I have a special guest, Diane Kinney. Diane's a web professional and a freelancer based in Florida. She's writing a book with Carrie Dills called Real World Freelancing, and I thought it'd be fun to chat with her about freelancing and running uh, small businesses. Hey, Diane. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, so we were just talking a little bit before the show, and it seems you named your book Real World Freelancing, but then we agreed on the fact that we don't like the word freelancing. Um, so what are you if not a freelancer? In general, I like the term small business owner. Mm-hmm. Um, consultant is also very good. Freelancer to me implies that there's not a relationship um, between you and your clients, that you're a resource that just, you know, shows up, is task, is paid, and moves on, um, which is not the business strategy that most people are really looking for. They're looking for um, repeat clients. They're looking for recurring revenue, you know, and those things don't tend to pair up that well with freelancing. Um, Matt Madera said something interesting, I think in one of his recent podcast episodes that he considered himself a freelancer because he was experimenting you know, with with different things and doing different things. And I thought that was an interesting kind of new take on the word freelancing. But I still really suggest to people that they sit down and think about what what do I want to be? Do I want to be a a small business? Do I want to be a boutique digital agency? Um, Do I want to be a consultant that specializes in certain things? And if that's the case, you know, don't label yourself as a freelancer, either in your business and marketing materials or even mentally, because I think it makes a big difference how you think about what you're doing. Hmm. See, I also dislike that word. Um, I also tend to apply, I don't know why, but a degree of part-timeness to the word uh, unless someone like specifies like a full right. time freelancer because mm-hmm. it it seems like a uh, the type the type of title you give yourself if you're doing it on the side. Um, I totally to agree. It. I totally agree. To me, even in you know with what what we do, we have a business, and so if I was doing a little you know 
niche stuff on the side from the core business on nights and weekends, I would think of that as freelancing. <laughs> but it's not, it just doesn't imply that any level of investment, it doesn't seem full time. It, mm-hmm. You know, it just really is kind of a fill a gap type of title. But we had to make a decision. People are self-identifying themselves as freelancers, even though they really are not according to the most common definition that we talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, they're creating online businesses. They may provide services to clients. Maybe they're doing product development, courses, um, all kinds of different things. And to me, that's not a freelancer, especially when you're, you know, investing and creating product and, and doing things. It's also not a solopreneur. I never want to hear that word. That That is just... <laughs> I mean, freelancer, I can kind of live with, solopreneur. Is it because of the buzzworthiness of it, or you don't think it applies well? I don't think it applies well, and I think it's horribly buzzworthy. But if you think about, you know, entrepreneur is an actual thing. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it comes in singular and plural already. Entrepreneur, entrepreneurs. And we have a, a family friend that's an entrepreneur. And he buys and sells businesses. Um, to make money. So he has several fast food restaurants. He has uh, real estate developments. He is not terribly interested. He doesn't necessarily have a passion for those businesses. Mm-hmm. He's looking for the return on investment for his portfolio. I I think that's what a you know, an entrepreneur kind of is. You know, you might have a passion business in there. Um, so we're speaking more about a type of business where you're passionate about the practice itself of what exactly. So- and I think if you're passionate about what you're doing, um, may- maybe you are an entrepreneur, um, but you don't need to label yourself a solopreneur. That. I, I mean, I think it dates you. I like the, I like the word solo practitioner. Um, yes, I do too. And so we don't have to spend too much time, too much more time on the terminology, but I did think it would be good for us to uh, frame our context for the type of yeah. the type of individuals we're talking about. And uh, you teamed up with Carrie Dills on this book. Both of you guys are uh, web people. Uh, yes. y'all, y'all do consulting on the web. You come from different backgrounds, um, but you work in a similar sphere now, correct? Y'all are both doing correct. consulting for mostly small businesses, but willing to do all sorts. Absolutely. We, Carrie and I have had the common experience of, you know, g- growing over a period of time. Um, you start out in this business by focusing on, you know, client solutions first, typically. And for Carrie, uh, that has grown into um, a number of areas of focus. Um, teaching, um, she's done numerous courses with lynda.com. She has one of her own courses. She does a lot of speaking. Of course, um, Office Hours, her podcast has, um, you know, community and uh, things developing around it. So that kind of that line of work that you start out in develops into interesting future possibilities. 
for me, it's a little bit different. It's certainly evolved, but my passion is more around um, process management, marketing, um, product development, and things like that. So Carrie and I had a similar beginning, but we've been able to, you know, evolve into different complementary directions. Cool. Um, you know, I an, one other thing came to my mind when about the freelancer thing, and then I promise we'll officially drop it. Uh, <laughs> I think another thing it does is it really sells you short during the selling process because um, if you describe yourself as a freelancer to a serious business, then when they're comparing you to other options for consulting, then they're going to say, but they're just a freelancer rather Absolutely. rather than they're a, uh, a solo practitioner or however else you want to define it or small business. And it's a shame because a lot of freelancers become um, their own you know, their own little businesses because they've outgrown what's available to them in terms of advancement in larger organizations. And it might be because they're really good at their job. Um, a lot of people that are out on their own are doing it because, uh, you know, they want flexibility and it doesn't really define their professionalism. But some people have outgrown employment to the degree that they have a, a better opportunities for billing their time and whatever else by working for themselves. So it's not limiting the expertise um, to the end client. It's actually, uh, it's actually giving the end client a greater expertise sometimes than they can get from hiring a, a multi-person or a larger firm. Um, so I think that's one additional reason to, to calm down on calling yourself a freelancer, especially towards clients. Very much so. One of the most common um, frustrations that you hear just overall is commodity and low pricing and people are doing this work for $500 and I just can't, you know, sell my services at an appropriate rate. And a lot of that is positioning. Um, if you're not distinguishing yourself from what a person who charges $500 is doing, that's the crux of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the things I find interesting about the way that y'all are pitching this book so far, we've established that uh, we're talking about uh, working for yourself in the web, on the web, um, but the web seems to be a, uh, a relatively small part of what you're teaching people. Um, you describe client management, business strategy, processes and tools, marketing, uh, health, and other things um, that you haven't disclosed yet. But is that because, in your own experience, the web and tooling portion is uh, is a minority of of your time and your efforts of running your own business? I think I think the problem that I've seen um, that's coming up a lot for other people. I mean, the focus is kind of an output of, you know, years of conversations and questions and things that people struggle with. Um, I did not struggle terrifically as a freelancer starting out because I had a pretty strong business background. So I had some awareness of the things that I needed to do, but 
what you see today is people opting for um, a, this type of career in a way that's somewhat unprepared because we live in this noisy world, right? So we're shown images of, you know, some guy at the beach freelancing, you know, <laughs> and it's like the most ridiculous, you know, scenario. Um, and you read articles that say things like, I just, I just read an article last night on Medium um, that literally said, all you need to do to be a six-figure freelancer is do some math, figure out how much you want to make, divide that up, and there you go. And that kind of information and guidance is just, you know, it's just plain wrong. And there's um, good guidance out there on the web, but it's not necessarily all packaged together in one place. So our idea was instead of trying to find, you know, 27 legitimate blog articles about how to run your business, we could take the things that we've learned and the things that we would have wanted to know and put them in one package. Whether you're starting out or you've been at this a while, but you're struggling, um, when you become successful at freelancing, you'll have a lot of work to deal with. Once you have a lot of work to deal with, what do you do in terms of you know systems and, and planning? And there's, there's areas that are just kind of where there are flawed thinking, right? Like I see people talk about project management a lot, and they talk about it in the context of a tool. Should I use Trello or should I use Asana? <laughs> should I use Basecamp or should I use it's, – it's, project management is not a tool. Project management is a process. Maybe you should talk to your client. <laughs> so first – Let's figure out what project management actually means. You know, what are, what are the steps in that? What do, you, what do you need to do? And then you can choose a tool um, that fits with your process. But don't, you know, don't start with a tool. That's, that's a huge mistake because you're going to spend a lot of time, you know, setting up different tools and then going, oh, I, I actually hate this now that I spent. It doesn't fit my business. It's just annoying, you know. So there's a lot of. Um, ideas we'd like to put out there about maybe starting with needs and thought processes and where are your pain points instead of, you know, tooling and trends and, you know, whatever you read yesterday on the internet. What have you learned over the years? You said you've been doing this for 15 years on your own, and that's after you were in the corporate world. Um you started in operations in the corporate world, and then you moved into leading an app development team in a, in a very uh, traditionally corporate environment, and now 15 years on your own. What have you learned about uh, communication, like human-to-human -human communication in that time? Communication is everything. The way you communicate with your clients, the way you communicate with your teammates, and... Mm -hmm. We have an extra challenge now because we work in um, remote environments, which I think is fantastic. Um, I love the flexibility. I've been working from a home office for 15 years. But you have to go the extra mile um, with everyone, service providers, clients, you know, even your peers. Um, if they can't see your facial expressions, if you're communicating through email, um, 
and the other aspect of that is you need to prioritize communication. People tend to prioritize their craft, code, design, um, as their number one area of focus. And that's great if you're working for someone else because They're subcontracting. Right. Because then there is someone who is handling communication, relationships, business development. But if you are doing that for your own clients and you are the person responsible for nurturing and growing that business, you've got to take a step back and think about in the course of a week, how much time do I spend on the craft, you know, the actual output? How much time do I spend on what I call business development, which is sales, bringing in new clients, sales, but also, you know, getting um, recurring business from past relationships, networking with your friends, you know, different things like that. How much time per week do you need to spend on, you know, administrative tasks? You, you know, you really do have to reconcile, you know, your bank account, you have to pay your taxes, you need to invoice people. And so, I find that typically a person's vision of their week, and a, a week is arbitrary. It could be a month. It could be whatever. Mm-hmm. But a person's vision of how many hours they're going to spend working, you know, with their technical skills is usually much, much larger than it is in reality. You know, you need to be working on communication, updates, you know, all of those other things. You can do the greatest work in a vacuum but if you're not communicating with your clients in a way that they can understand, you know, if you're not managing the project in a way that's well understood, you're not going to be successful. I'm going to use the term solo practitioner from here on out <laughs> okay. since we made fun of freelancer for so long. <laughs> uh, what percentage of a solo practitioner's time, someone that's providing uh end end uh they're providing solutions to an end client they're not subcontracting so someone like you what percentage of a solo practitioner's time do you think should be their goal for having uh spent that time what i'll 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 term directly billable whether it's hourly or not um but on on the meat and potatoes of building something versus the the other elements that you've described I think you're doing extraordinarily well if you're able to bill 60% of your time. Mm-hmm. If you're billing more than 60% of your time, you're probably not attending to um, a lot of those other tasks. And this is something that's happened to me repetitively over the years. I um, get involved in a long-term project with a client that's lucrative and complex. And while I'm involved with that client, I'm I'm not looking up at all. I'm working on that project. And I'm not, you know, marketing. I'm not, you know, doing anything other than working on that project. And when that project is done, <laughs> the world has gone quiet. You know, if you if you aren't consistently um, working on activities to fill your pipeline, 
you know, you can work on a, a fantastic project and then, you know, you get paid and you have nothing at all in the queue. Mm-hmm. So this idea of balance, you know, is something that I had to kind of learn. That's one of the, probably one of the biggest lessons that I've learned over the years is you cannot, if you, if you want to be in it for the long term, you cannot sink yourself so completely into the work that you were hired to do that you stop developing your business. I want to. Otherwise, you'll you'll just wake up one day and be like, "Oh, great, can't pay the mortgage." <laughs> yeah. Well, and um, sometimes I think about that when I see people that have been freelancing for a long time all of a sudden say they're looking for a full time gig is because they've right. gotten themselves into a situation. I I think that is the exact scenario. Um, I've I've talked to people who um, that's happened to, and I've had a couple. Uh, close calls, mm-hmm. which which were a really interesting scenario. Twice in the last fifteen years, I have let one client um, own me, for lack of a better word, <laughs> <laughs> for you know premium dollars over an extended period of time. And it's one of those things that feels really good while it's happening. Um, you know, when the direct deposits are coming in. You can be efficient. You can get beyond the 50 to 60% of billable time because you're you're so focused on one person. It feels good. You know, you're in the groove. Um, But here's here's the problem. At the end of the day, you are a contract resource to them. Right. You know, that project will end at some point. It may end earlier than you expected. The person you know, that you have the business relationship with could get fired, get sick. Um, They could decide to cancel that project. There's so many scenarios that can happen. And while you've been completely enmeshed, almost feeling like you're in an employee relationship with that company, you're part of that team, and, you know, wow, you guys have been going at this for a year together, you know, there's going to come an end point Um, either because the project finishes or the project gets canceled, and then what are you going to do? Well, you've been heads down for a year. You know, nobody really knows what you do anymore. You haven't been socializing. You, you know, you haven't been, you know, chatting with your peers. And, you know, you've just isolated yourself in a a cave. And you just said said heads down for a year, and I think probably more than one person listening just – uh, did a double check because a year sounds like an extraordinarily long time to most people. Um, but that's something, that's a tenure, a, a, an amount of time that you start thinking about once you've been practicing for, for more than a few years. Absolutely. So this is a lesson that uh, someone could be taking uh, for free that you learned the hard way. <laughs> yes. Um, you. Yeah, as you, as you move into... Um, more complex projects, um, you will get an opportunity to work on projects that are more than uh, crafting a theme or writing a plugin. So you're looking at large scale um, implementation projects, projects with with moving parts, with integrations, and it's not a stretch um, for for those to be a year of your life and be a really great year of your life. 
but you've got to make a decision, um, a proactive decision when you get involved with something like that. Um, even then, you know, you can't give that project really more than 75% of your time because you need to keep that 25% to whether it's, you know, that you're, you know, blogging, making yourself visible, you know, um, you know, doing things um, so that you don't just kind of disappear. It takes a, a long time to build visibility initially. And if you've done it, then you you can't just you know, let it go. So you said um, about 60% heads down is doing great. And you would actually get concerned around 75% heads down because then you're truly not doing other things that your business needs. Absolutely. So, and I think some of the percentage variable depends on how efficient mm-hmm. you are. Um, yeah, so you can spend even less time billable if you're right. quite efficient. Right. So I want to extrapolate some of this stuff because I, uh, I appreciate the subtitle of your book, which is the No BS Survival Guide, uh, and that involves money. And I want to extrapolate, uh, let's say someone's working 40 hours a week, let's use a, uh, a 50% heads-down number, billable number, for fun. And if you're billing out 50 weeks a year, so you're taking two weeks off. That's basically how we can calculate our year. Yes. Um that's easy math in order to uh, understand what your gross revenue potential is because mm-hmm. if you take that and then you multiply it times the amount you're valuing your dollar per hour, whether you're billing it hourly or project or whatever, right? Um, at the end of the day, the dollars that you get per hour that you spend heads down, uh, that's, that's the math that you can do for how much you can earn in a year. So at a 50% effective rate, 50 weeks a year, 40 hours a week, $100 an hour is what you need to make $100,000 gross revenue. $50 an hour for $50,000 gross revenue. This is not complicated math. $150 for $150,000 gross revenue. So wherever you put your experience, your goals, all those things, whatever you're trying to achieve, that's the that's the simple math that people need to use to be able to estimate what's possible within the year. Um, yeah. I really wanted to focus on that percentage of effective uh, time, like heads down time, because that's what I think people are going to use when they're estimating what they're doing. Um, or at least I know that's how I've done it, both yes. both in agency and, and, and freelancing. One of the critical things that I think if you're not doing it now, you need to start today, which is track your own time. Um, because we can suggest you know, effective rates, but you really won't know what yours are until you track your time. And there's such a range of skills that um, in in addition to um, doing development work, I do a lot of design work and I'll get a a design project in from somebody and they'll say, "Uh, I think this will take six to 12 hours. And it takes me about 90 minutes. Um, so you can see like how much variation there can be in terms of the things that you do. So I think it's really important to track everything, not just the time that you're working on projects. Um, if you have a Friday morning admin where you're invoicing and following up and, um, you know, doing your banking and those types of things, track that time and you will 
you know, quickly in three to six months, have an accurate picture of your own business. I mean, we can we can share our theories, but the faster you build a picture of your own business, the better decisions you can make. And then you can do better estimates. You can do better proposals. And an important thing to think about is I, I don't do, I don't think I really do any hourly work um, in terms of from the client perspective, right. but, but I still keep track internally um, the numbers on that project from an hourly perspective. Because it informs you, know, I, you so that you can be better. Exactly. And for reference, uh, as someone who is, does not track their time, and then and then often wonders where the heck the day went. Uh, this is valuable for people that aren't consulting as well. Absolutely, I I think this is such a um, you know if you're if you're working as a creative if you're building products. I mean I can't imagine too many scenarios where um, uh, tracking your time is invaluable and. I, I wrote a post about it a few months ago, you know, four reasons that you need to track your time. And one of the people who inspired me to write that was Andrea Rennick. Um, she tracks her quilting time and she's so smart about it. Um, so she knows, you know, when you come to her and want, you know, this particular approach and this size with this level of detailing, she's got a track record that lets her speak knowledgeably about what that's going to take. I, I was also intrigued by the fact that many, uh, I have a little hobby of botanical painting. Many botanical painters track their time. Um, n- not necessarily determine what to charge, but they finish this beautiful painting and they're able to say, you know, this, this was, you know, 236 hours, you know, just, <laughs> just to know that. So it's so easy to track your time. There's uh, Chrome extensions, you know, there's phone, toggle is free. Um, I really think everybody should do it. I loathe tracking my time, uh, but I've had to admit admit over the course of my career that the most productive self-employed people that I know are expert time trackers. Absolutely. Um, and we talked about effective hourly rate. One of the most common pieces of advice you hear from one consultant to another is raise your rates. Uh, equally important, probably more important, is actually your rate might be okay, but your ability to estimate properly might be terrible. Right. So you can raise your rates if you more effectively estimate. So if you think something's going to take 100 hours and then it ends up taking 200 hours, you don't have to raise your rate to <laughs> you be just better. Cut your rate in half. You just exactly. have to estimate two hundred hours up front and sell that. Exactly. So how there's a whole how, world of skill in um, scoping and estimating, which are two different things. So in terms of estimating, you estimating is a good term. Work breakdown structure is a good term. Um, where you really get as granular as possible. You know, open a Google Sheet and break it down um, into the smallest parts that make sense. Don't get ridiculous, but break it down into its parts. Um, 
Then estimate what you think those parts are going to take. Then track your time and see how good your estimate was. Keep doing that. Your estimates will get better. The better your estimates get, the better profit margin you're going to have on any project. You also need to account for the the estimate or the scope of work or statement of work. Work breakdown structure is one component. Okay, let's pause and re-say that. (laughs) The work breakdown structure is one part of a scope of work. The rest of the scope takes into consideration things like communication, status updates. um, What about DevOps? What about setting up the environment? What about testing? And what about all those tasks that need to happen, perhaps not by you directly, um, on the client's end, where you're going to wait. So that's another thing to take into consideration. You can get into a groove, but then when you have lag time on a project, you lose a certain amount of efficiency. So you want to learn how to you know, anticipate that. And the, and the better you can get at this, um, the less concerned you have to be about your rate because you'll become more efficient than 90% of the people out there. I've written a uh, blog post. It's probably the most popular post I've ever written on post status about the cost of a WordPress website. Um, For me, what's always been most effective for trying to estimate the cost uh, that a website's going to be is analyzing views um, and then estimating per view the type of view that it is, on, this is for web stuff, obviously, the right. type of view that it is, what you're looking at, whether that's e-commerce or portfolio or whatever, and then breaking that down per view, what I expect that it's going to take. Is that something that you found to be effective? Or if not, what would you replace that with? I try to have some roughly grouped categories of project, of web projects. So you have, um, you can have a a marketing style website that's from simple to complex, e-commerce, and then there's really an emerging um, type of site um, where people are selling products. I wouldn't necessarily call it e-commerce, but they're really focusing on like list building, um, sales of their products and courses, that type of thing. So those are kind of my three big buckets. And each of those kind of has a lens, like you said, um, what, what's typical here? Because you, you know each of those kinds have um, some components that you, you don't see on the surface. Um, e-commerce, you're looking at um, working through gateway issues, um, setup, Shipping. you know, different. Yes, there's, there's different complexities there that you innately know. Um, are going to take some time and energy. Recently, I've worked on several of these newer style websites where there's a lot of integration, you know, where people are wanting, um, you know, they've got a course, they're building that course and a tool. Um, Sometimes they're wanting the course to be available for sale at specific points in time. They're wanting information um, when people purchase uh, to not only go into, you know, the, the membership system, but also 
um, go into their email with the, you know, tagged and segmented. And so on those types of projects, one of the first things you're doing is I, I think you actually have to, you know, document out the workflow. So, you know, allow time for you to document out the workflow, allow time to get all those, you know, accounts and pieces and different things together. So that's kind of my my first layer is figuring out all the gotchas, I tend to call it. Then my next layer is exactly what you described, looking at um, views, um, you know, what needs to be happening and where does it need to be happening? And then um, the last bucket is really, it seems to me that there's a lot of incidental tasks um, that happen on every project. Um, and, and they're not necessarily scope issues. They're just things you didn't, didn't think about or they're a byproduct of, you know, two elements working together. So you need to, you need to leave some room um, for the unexpected. And then I take that and, you know, use a spreadsheet typically to break that down. And then I track time and then I take a couple projects and I plug the time back in and learn. Yeah, part of the, the important part of tracking that time, if you're not billing it to the client, is to utilize your historical data to inform Absolutely. your future decisions. I think it's really best to quote um, fixed price products in general. Um, it's it makes for a better relationship with the client. Um, it creates less overhead for you with billing and justification. But you have to remember that even that, even though that's the way you're pricing and contracting that product, you are still, um, from a knowledge and learning perspective, need to track your time um, at that you know effective rate you think you're working at. And you need to see if that's what really happened. So maybe on your first first price project, fixed price project, that's kind of hard to say, <laughs> um, you you lose your shirt. You know, you, you went 50% over your estimate. That's not the end of the world because remember time, time, time is not actually a concrete object. I mean, we talk about it like it is. Um, but you went over, um, you learned something. You learned that you did not estimate that project very well. You know, and, and you might say in conversation, gosh, I, I, you know, lost my shirt on that project. You didn't really, you know, because you're working. Um, that project didn't take actual cash out of your pocket. It took theoretical cash out of your pocket. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. People get very upset about this, like, oh, this project went, you know, took so much longer than I estimated, and I lost so much money. You lost theoretical money. Um, Opportunity costs. Right. But if you learn something, you know, if you take that and do the work to put that into your next project, you know, so that it gets better, and the one after that gets better, you know, then you're not losing anything. You're actually, you know, gaining capability and you're gaining knowledge and you're, you're getting better at what you're doing. 
when I was doing client work, I could have the same project in terms of the deliverable side by side, but the client, the person I'm interacting with, uh, if they're different, then I could have considerably different prices that I would end up providing them. Absolutely. I call this my client multiplier, depending on (laughs) whether there's a single point of contact or a need for a committee or if there's a lot of red tape in the organization, things like that. Um, And for me, that could play an enormous role, double the price. It should play an enormous role. How do you, you how do you how do you base those types of decisions on what your client multiplier is? It's kind of gut and experience at this point. I, I think that would be one of the most difficult things to kind of systematically help someone new with, um, because after you do this for a while, you start you start to see patterns, and they're exactly the kind of patterns you just describe. Um, committees, <laughs> committees should be like three acts. <laughs> um, there are different personalities. Even if you get a single point of contact, there are clients that are have efficient personalities that you can give them tasks, and they go through those tasks and give you the answers. And it's just as simple as pie. It's like a dream. Um, I've only had a few of those. Uh, a lot of people have an innate desire to talk, to you know, talk through things and um, be very consultive. And when you're doing your initial, um, I, I wouldn't ever take a client without having some kind of conversation with them. Skype, is, phone, And that's something. so you can get a feel for their desire to talk? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, ask, ask a couple questions, you know, and try to get a little bit of a sense for, you know, how they work. And after you do that a couple times, you're going to get pretty good at it. Um, and you're going to figure out who the talkers are. You're going to figure out um, uh, people who don't like to really – there's a certain type of client that owns their business too much. And we're seeing more and more of that now um, where, you know, you created a DIY website, for example, and you grew it to a certain point, And then you decided that you needed to call in, you know, professional help um, because you're ready to take it to the next level, new products, different things, better branding. And, after interacting with a few of these folks, this is kind of a new archetype for me. These people are so self-educated, you know, in a deep, deep way um, that they have grabbed a hold of certain products, certain strategies, certain things they've read in Facebook groups that you spend a lot of time trying to unwind you know, so they, that, that's definitely another client multiplier. That's something that didn't really happen so much years ago, you know, where somebody would say, oh, I, I, I read up and Infusionsoft is the answer. You know, it is, it, my project has to be done with that. And it's like, interesting. Um, but you also want this, which has no integration with that. And deep subject, but, you know, that's another client multiplier. <laughs> 
and kind of a new one. So I'm always kind of mentally, you know, assessing that and thinking about that. But if the, you know, knowledgeable, efficient person is your baseline, you know, everybody else goes up from there. Mm -hmm. Committees, um, you know, self-educators, there's there's a whole bunch of them. When you have initial conversations with people and then you determine with one another that you want to work together – do you have a standard lead time that you prepare them with in terms of how long between uh, the sales process and when you can start? It uh, It's not a standard. Um, it varies, but it's usually X point in the future, right? So I'll look at the schedule. Um, we do a lot of different projects, some small, some large. That's super small. Is it a good but- practice to say that you're not going to start right now <laughs> like d- yes <laughs> yes you're not starting right now <laughs> no never start right now even if you have time right now do you think even it, well here's the thing it seems to me like it could set a bad expectation sometimes it does and you need to onboard a client this is one of the things that i, I really am convinced of the benefit of um i used to respond to that you know if we weren't super busy and somebody wanted to start right away it was like yeah okay let's get rolling you know get your check and da 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 and those projects are don't go well (laughs) um because you haven't set you haven't set them up properly in a number of dimensions like you haven't set expectations there's you think about all the professionals in your life from the plumber to maybe an architect to the guy that fixes your car, how many of them do you just call up and say, I need you to do this this afternoon? And how many of them would say, oh, okay, I, I wasn't sitting here actually doing anything, you know, so I'll just jump on that right away. Unless it's about 100 degrees and it's my air conditioner that broke, I would yes. be a little concerned if someone could meet right away. Exactly. It's like, so you don't have much to do, do you? (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is sketchy. So that's one aspect of it is availability. I think it also sets the table for um, those are the same clients who, you know, have trouble with boundaries. Um, Understanding the workday is a defined thing. Um, is there a zone of healthy lead times though? Like is, and, and cause I imagine if you say like my lead time is three months, then maybe, uh, maybe you do need to make adjustments to your prices or something, you know, because you have right, too much in, right. in the, in the queue. So is, totally it, is there a place I, where you think it's kind of a healthy, a healthy lead time? I, I'm not sure there's one, um, I don't think it's inconceivable that you could start a project in in two weeks from contact if you've, you know, done um, the homework and onboarded the client and, you know, get the ducks in the proverbial row. Um, three months, pe- I think that there are people who need specialty services that might be prepared to wait, people on, you know, certain budget cycles. I think you have to get a little information during your um, initial contact about, there's also a lot of people 
uh, now that I'm um, experiencing that have specific uh, dates they need to accomplish. So if you're talking to somebody about an e-commerce project in the beginning of June, you know, is their product something that is holiday centric, you know, and how's that going to inform start and finish dates? Um, if somebody's, you know, launching something with seasonality, you know, it's a garden center website maybe, and it absolutely needs to be through knockout, you know, by spring, you know, that's something you need to factor in. So I try to look at start and finish in a collaborative conversation, I guess. It's not just my availability, but when is the client, like there are clients that are ready to start today. Then there are clients that are nowhere near ready to start because they don't know all the, you know, prep steps involved, um, things that they need to get together. So I try to make that a conversation. Um, Some people would wait three months for, you know, a specialty plugin development or, Mm -hmm. you know, a complex e-commerce integration. The more rare what you need is, the the longer you're willing to wait. Um, So I think that's, it's a really healthy conversation to have with the client is when do you want to start? When do you want to end? You know, how long should this take? Not this is another tricky piece because there's a lot of work that can be done in a fairly short period of time for us, technically, right, as, as uh, solo practitioners. Um, in a perfect world, you could sit down and build an e-commerce site in X amount of time. Um, your customer probably has a job beyond working on this website. So even if they're in a corporate environment and they're the, you know, director of marketing, they're going to be directing marketing all day long. They're not giving you 100% of their attention. Never. I mean, that is so incredibly rare, rare to get 100% of their attention. What, so what, you've got to think about that. What number of clients in that, in that same line of thinking, what number of clients do you think it's safe for a solo practitioner to have in the, for the web? for the design or build phase at any given time? Like if you have more than four active clients in that phase, is that bad or is there some number? I think so. I think I think three or four. Um, you have to look at um, kind of what level of work you're doing, like the complexities of the site. Yeah. Um, but and if we a, use that number of four and we are only heads down 20 hours a week, at four, you're only spending five hours per client per week if you're evenly distributing that. Right. And you're probably not evenly distributing it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the um, that's the key thing you have to look at. What's your so, ideal? Would it be one or would it would you yeah. rather have a couple that you're toggling or what? I'd probably like one. Okay. Um, it's interesting. I started out, started doing websites. Well, I was actually online before there was a web, right? Bulletin boards and stuff. So I started um, doing websites right at the very beginning. And in the olden days, when we walked uphill in the snow, we opened up Photoshop and we meticulously created every page of that website, including the copy, 
you know, the calls to action, every every element. The old days when you charge uh, X dollars per page instead right. of per content type or something like that. And it was a lot more than it is today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> $1,000 for your about page. Exactly. $2,000 for your Those were the good old page. days, man. <laughs> and, and then we cut them up with a slice tool, awesome. you know, and put them in tables, right? But what was I was thinking about this recently. What was very interesting about that time versus this time is a much larger percentage of your attention went into content presentation um, than it generally does today, right? Today we think in terms of um, templates, maybe different templates, but we say the client should provide the content and you know, it's it's more of a um, repetitive assembly line. I think what's going to happen, or I hope what's going to happen in the future, is the lower end of the market, you know, has, has a lot of commodity design going on. And if that's all you need, that's great. But I think there's a lot to be said for positioning yourself as more than a website maker, more than a, you know, template builder, um, if you can start forging relationships with clients where you're consulting with them about business goals, um, tying together business goals online and off, um, conversion paths through their site, uh, development of newsletter, how to leverage social, um, which all tie back to the website. But now you're um, selling real expertise. You know, you're you're selling something um, that somebody who builds a website for five hundred dollars isn't doing, isn't isn't even trying to do. How much um, How much do you have to learn their industry in order to provide that type of consulting? Um, to, I've always felt like you have to spend a significant amount of time getting to know their business. Like you can't. You can't apply a, a template of just, you know, they're, no. they're in manufacturing or they're in no whatever. I, I think for me on average, what feels like a two-day immersion in a, in a significant business. You know, I just met with a um, manufacturing client this summer and we spent – about three hours together, we toured their plant and, you know, talked about all kinds of things. And I came away with the feeling that if we were going to do that top level work for them, I could see, you know, a two day immersion um, in understanding their current operations, you know, pros and cons, their marketing. Um, it was B2B business, which has some complexities. So, no, I don't think you can take a template and apply it to those situations. But I think if you have value um, and, and can bring some skill and value to the table, you know, a, a client will conceptually pay you for that immersion. Um, do you, not as a line item, do you, but, you know. Do you tend to charge up front for that discovery process. I really like the term immersion. I think I agree. I think one or two days at least of immersing yourself into someone else's business, someone else's problems, uh, how they make money, um, how you can value 
the various uh, elements that you're building into the website, like what they're worth. Um, yeah. A good example that I, we had in one of, the, one of the agencies I worked with was a client that sold wedding dresses, and they knew the value of an in-person consultation. Right. So we could directly assign a value to scheduling a consultation through the website. So that allowed us to understand how much th- that call to action was worth on the website. It's not always so black and white. Um, right. But, but it an, does an immersion work. gives you those answers a lot of times. So do you ever charge for that process itself? Yes, but I don't call it discovery. Okay. Um, because I don't think any... Uh, I don't think clients can relate to that. Um, so we'll have an initial uh, meeting. You know, we have a, a good feeling that we want to work together. The way that I've gotten involved with my largest clients, some of which have been, you know, really large and long term, is by working into the relationship. You know, the conversation usually starts with their website. And I might recommend after that conversation that we do a strategy project. That's what I like to call it, um, rather than discovery. Because it's a more relatable term. You know, so let's talk about your marketing strategy. You know, what is it offline? What is it online? What do you want it to be? Where are your customers coming from? Um, You know, that type of thing. And I think that that is received um, much better than the concept of let's do discovery, you know, which is very nerdy. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No, I think... It's like people don't get that. Dis- what? Discovery's a channel, you know? It just it just doesn't resonate with people. And then you... I feel like some clients are going to be relationship clients, and you need to stay in touch with them. You're going to maybe do a strategy project, maybe you do their website. And then they come back and say, we'd really like to, our website to talk to our internal systems. Or maybe you suggest that, that it would be very efficient, you know, for their website to do this or to do that. And they say, that's a great idea. You know, let's let's see how we could do that. And most of the, like, really interesting larger projects we've done have been like that. Like, we worked with um, the NFL and their youth football program for a couple years, and we didn't just do the website, but we built um, a web application that took all the inputs from, oh God, you'll know what this is called. You know, when the players do their their tests, the, long jump. The combine. The combine. <laughs> <laughs> it took all the combine um, data and pulled it into an application, and then, you know, we sorted it and gridded it for recruiters and coaches. Um, that conversation started with, a you know, we need a website. Hmm. Um, there have been several others um, that started with, you know, we need a website. And we did, you know, really cool integrations, quoting, automating things and different things. So, you know, be prepared to be a partner. Um, But being prepared to being a partner also means that you need to invest something in the relationship. I know it's very trendy for, you know, bill, 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 charge, 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 you know, get get every dollar of your day covered. 
Um, but that's not really a good classic sales strategy. Speaking, you know, I, I want to take a break for a minute because speaking of immersion and providing additional services, uh, I would like to immerse our partner today into this conversation uh, because I have a feeling it's a tool that you've used quite a bit in your own consulting practice. Uh, today, our partner is Yoast and Yoast SEO, the uh, valuable plugin for WordPress that um, helps take care of all the technical stuff surrounding SEO and the page markup and the various things that you need to do to your website. However, it doesn't take care of the hard work of actually uh, optimizing your various pages and content because that's something that you do on an individual basis. Uh, basis for the type of content that you're writing and the type of content that you're optimizing. Is this a tool that you have experience with, Diane? I have much experience with Yoast, and Yoast is one of the, the great enabling WordPress tools. It doesn't do the work for you, um, but it tells you what work you need to do. And I think it's fantastic also that Yoast has those extra pieces that help you with um, your images for social media, you know, rich Twitter cards, and things that could be a tremendous amount of work um, are, are settings in Yoast, which is awesome. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've really started to try to take advantage of more is uh, creating snippets for search engines, but also uh, customizing what I'm going to broadcast out to Facebook and Twitter and whatever, or when a post gets automatically shared uh, on those on those platforms, you can customize uh, what's shown there. And I really like that about Yoast. I like that Yoast takes care of the technical stuff, and I don't have to deal with that. However, yes. the uh, the optimization or the um, catering your content is still our job, and it's our job to sell. So thanks for Yoast for sponsoring today's show. It fits in great with this, uh, with this episode. You can go to yoast.com for more information. Go download uh, Yoast SEO. It's one of the most popular plugins in the repo, uh, and you can get the uh, commercial version of the Yoast SEO plugin that offers additional features like a redirect system that helps you automatically uh, redirect URLs or content that you delete and a lot of other things. You can manually set those as well. It's pretty powerful. So, uh, yeah, check out Yoast.com. Thank you for Yoast for sponsoring, and uh, Diane, feel free to expand any more in terms of how you communicate uh, SEO to clients and what role that plays in your consulting business. That's one of the tough ones, um, depending on the client level. The larger the client is, um, mm-hmm. the more likely they are to understand the complexities of SEO or, or hear it from you. Um, smaller clients, small businesses tend to be very subject to snake oil salesman, which is just one of my oh, greatest frustrations. Um, you'll build somebody a like a fantastic WordPress site that's optimized with Yoast and you know it's it's all set up um, and they just need to keep continuing to write content and you know do do the right things um, for SEO. And then somebody will come along and say, you know, for $200 a month, I'm going to put you on page one, give me access to your site, and I'll rip out all the good stuff that's been done. And I just feel so bad for those people because 
you know, it's hard to educate folks that SEO is not something that is even remotely possible for a few hundred dollars a month. Like that's a very difficult thing to explain. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess the best you could probably do is some uh, some one-off settings in order to um, have what you need in place for local SEO purposes. Right. Um, but certainly not like natural search discovery for right. uh, you know domain-specific uh, right. content. But in terms, we've seen the we've be- seen clients end up with you know spun articles on their site. You know, somebody tells them for a hundred dollars, "Hey, here's twelve blog posts we're gonna put on there." <laughs> we also like, put oh, them. Man. We also put them on a hundred other client sites. Exactly. It's like this is such a bad idea. Yeah. So yeah, you, SEO is probably the single biggest uh, you know topic with a lot of folks. They. They are less interested in focusing on content and conversion and the things that I would recommend they focus on, depending on on their niche. Um, because I have I have this theory too that I I like to share with people. It's that if if we can bring two people to your site and have them take an action and they're in your target market, you know. Is that not more beneficial than bringing 2,000 people to your site who have absolutely no interest in anything you have to offer? So let's let's think about that. Let's think about conversion. <laughs> yeah, you could get 50 visitors to your site a month, but if you're converting half of them, that's better than getting so much better. A lot of traffic, but conser- converting a, a tiny number of them. Uh, we're running out of time, but I do have two questions I'd like to to ask you about. One is I want to assume that the solo practitioners that are still with us are probably not do-it-all types. They don't, maybe they're just a designer or they're just a developer, or maybe they do design and development, but if someone does want, say, an ongoing content creation relationship or maintenance relationship or whatever that they're not interested in, how do you do, uh, how do you handle either subcontracting with other people or uh, maybe referral relationships? Uh, how, do you, how do you approach those types of situations for when there's a work that you know needs to be done for a client, but you're not the person to do it? With caution. I have worked consistently to develop relationships with people who are reliable and provide good customer service, which is a direct you know, reaction to the fact that I made referrals and worked with people who did not. Um, Have you been burned personally because the client trusted your recommendation? Yes, and then, multiple times. So if, if the person that you're recommending doesn't follow through, then you could lose the client yourself. You could lose the client yourself or you end up having a lot of awkward conversations about why you sent them in this direction you know, the natural sequence of events is if when you refer somebody to a client, they take that so seriously, you know, and really put a lot of faith in your recommendation. And then when that person does 
you know, good job at the first task or good job at the second task and then disappears, the first thing that client is going to do is call you and say, you know, what, what happened to such and such? Do you know, do you know if they're okay? That's a very common reaction. You know, they're, they're worried about this poor person who's flaked out. (laughs) Um, And, you know, that, that is just so awkward and painful. Um, to go through as an experience, you know, you just kind of want to smack yourself. And so I really have um, made it a point to develop relationships with people that I know um, are reliable and professional. And that's, that's taken a couple of years mm-hmm. to, you know, have, have a good list like that. Um but I've got relationships, you know, now with people who are editors and copywriters and, um, you know, SEO and PPC and uh, social so that I can. And I also like to, you know, for larger clients, you know, I'd like to stay peripherally involved um, so that I know this work is going well and, you know, we can work with them on an integrated basis you know, maybe we need to do some landing pages to support the SEO. I mean, that's the kind of clients you want to have. Um, it is better to not refer anybody than to refer somebody that you do not have 100% confidence in. And if you do, it, if someone insists that you put them in some direction and you don't feel comfortable then, or you don't feel sure of who you're sending them to, then at, at best... You, you just you just qualify your answer, right? Like you say, right. I can't vouch for this individual or this company, yes. but this is what they promise. I have not worked with this person, right? You know, I've heard good things, but I make no promises. Um, and my own experience, you know, with subcontractors um, has overall been poor. It's better in recent years uh, because I developed relationships with people that I can trust. But I often was chasing people to say, you committed to having, you know, this done on a date and it's not done and I didn't hear from you. And now I'm spending the time to try to track you down to find out why. Um, It's about the worst scenario for your own reputation, efficiency, delivery in the world. Yeah, I've... uh... Unfortunately, I think this is a a thing just with service businesses in general. I've encountered a m- far more service businesses since I've owned a home, and uh, right. and my home ownership tenure is around the same length as my uh, tenure have, of working in the web world full time. Um, so about six years, I guess, and. Unfortunately, the norm seems to be that people are poor at service. Um, yes, and it really is. That's both in regard to stuff to do with my home and things I've seen in the web industry. And I don't think that it changes for other service industries. And it's just very similar, oddly. Yeah, you know, it's really there, unfortunate. There's a lot of. I mean, we could talk about pool companies for two hours. <laughs> uh, the interesting thing I think that people need to learn from that is. It's very prevalent. If you give good service, you have just put yourself on a different playing field. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you should value that. Yes, 
it, I mean, it's so valuable to me to find somebody who I can work with um, reliably. I did a project with uh, um, that got a little bigger than I anticipated, and Ozzy Rodriguez came in, and I lined up tasks, and Ozzy just, like, knocked him out. Like, done, 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 done. You know, and I was totally back on track, and I was like, I wanted to cry from happiness. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that had never happened. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I certainly have one takeaway from my own experience hiring people, both for web stuff and for and for general service, and that's that if you know what the bad looks like, then when you're looking for someone that's good in a particular arena, price does not play the primary factor in terms of whether you'll hire them or not. Um, Definitely not. So it's a huge mistake for us to focus too much on price compared to service and then proving up front that we've got what it takes to deliver uh, f- during the project itself. Um, I have one more question for you, and then I want to give you an opportunity to fill in a, ga- a gap or two. That question is... Um, how much of your work is following up with past clients, reengaging those relationships, and uh, and and doing work, re- repeat work versus new work? There's a segment of clients that we have where we'll work with them extensively, sometimes over a multi-year period, um, and those are great relationships. So we'll, you know, typically start with a smaller project and, you know, then we'll grow together and share ideas and do enhancements. And um, it seems like we'll uh, develop one of those relationships every few years. And then, you know, something changes because life changes, like the um, uh, NFL work we were doing, the scenario change, but it was a great relationship um, for the time that the program lasted. We had another client that we were doing phenomenal work with for, I think, about three years, and then they were sold. Um, So it's a a great opportunity to develop. Just make sure you understand that it, it, you know, won't last forever. Um, Then, so we have those types of things generally almost always going on. We almost have some kind of ongoing um, development, you know, marketing, like kind of a 360 relationship with someone. Um, Then we'll have a segment of clients who um, need support from time to time for new things they're doing. Um, So you have a burst of work. It's quiet in between. Then we're, we're kind of developing um, another line of business where we're putting more focus on, content, social, email, um, that we work out a strategy and then fulfill that for clients because they don't really have time to do that. Like an every and, type of thing. Right, exactly. So that's an, that's another thing we've started doing more of in the last year. Um, we can typically get those things done much faster than somebody that's, you know, learning how to put together an email newsletter or, you know, we can do uh, advanced scheduling with social and, you know, create professional looking graphics and things like that. And so that's an area I'm, I'm very interested in. Diane, this has been a lot of fun. Um, It has. I think one of my big takeaways is 
uh, you're you're showing the value of I think it's called the the deep T level of expertise, uh, being that if you consider uh, the t- the various things that you can play in in terms of your service business uh, as the top of the T that goes across, and a lot of those may be shallow, and then you have the the T that goes down where you really uh, where you really shine, and that's really where you you focus in. But it, we shouldn't be afraid of that wide segment of stuff that we have knowledge of that we can help our clients with kind of across Absolutely the board. Not. I know there's a lot of, a lot to talk about, you know, niches and, and specializations. And, and I think that's great. Uh, but that's not for me. Like yeah. I, I wouldn't be adverse to, in fact, I'd be really open to on a project, you know, teaming up with somebody who had, you know, specialization, you know, in, you know, certain types of e-commerce functionality, but that for me is not as valuable as being um, fluent across business lines and strategies and knowing how to put solutions together, knowing how to, you know, put projects together that create solutions, finding people. I mean, I think there's, there's a huge um, need for that. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that can help a lot of people that have maybe been playing the role of like a capital I, <laughs> uh, right? And they can probably expand uh, what they do. Obviously, that could be getting yourself out of your comfort zone a good bit. Um, if you have to give me uh, one takeaway, maybe it's something that we haven't talked about today. Um, maybe it's just a, an add-on bit. Uh, what would you like to to leave listeners with? I think probably that you need to be prepared to invest in yourself um, in terms of time and learning. You know, we talked about how much, you know, effective billable time um, you can achieve and what makes sense. And we talked about business, things that you need to take care of. But one of the things that all of us in this space are always doing um, is learning. You know, we there, there's skill development in everything from, you know, technical, you know, we've come from, you know, HTML tables to SAS and, <laughs> um, you know, that whole span. And then there's also developing, you know, your business skills, you know, developing your marketing skills, um, informing yourself about, you know, what's going on out there. You know, maybe there are opportunities that, you can expand in the T, but you're going to have to be prepared to do some work. Um, I really love learning. Um, so I've spent most of my adulthood, I guess, uh, learning things as a form of entertainment. You know, I, I spend more time, you know, taking courses or reading books or delving into subjects and really educating myself than you know, typically watching TV because it just fascinates me, Mm -hmm. you know, and you probably will have to do a percentage of that um, if you want to, you know, operate a little bit different level. Mm -hmm. If you want to clock in at, you know, nine in the morning and clock out at 430 and make six figures on the beach. um, (laughs) Yeah, I don't have any good advice for that. (laughs) Yeah. I think a curious mind uh, can take you a lot of different directions. Um, I've always been probably a little too curious about just 
whatever's out there. But what I found personally is that um, things you learn that are far outside your own niche can really come back to help inform the work that you do day to day. And I think that very much so. those diverse experiences are very beneficial. So I completely agree. Um, in fact, I mean, sometimes I really don't like marketing the fact that uh, post status is a place for like WordPress professionals because a lot of the stuff I tend to write about and find interesting and share with members is actually not strictly WordPress. Uh, right. Because I don't, that's just, I don't think that's as valuable. Um, there's obviously a place for, you know, saying go look at this tutorial or that, but I find so much more value trying to inform WordPress professionals about all the other stuff that they're going to encounter in their profession. Absolutely. I've had a couple conversations recently with folks um, as they're working through, you know, the next set of things they're going to be doing, um, marketing, uh, uh products and different things. And I said, now, you know, everybody's first tendency is to say, you know, I'm a WordPress developer or, you know, I'm a WordPress professional. It's like, there's a certain segment uh, of people out there who are looking for you because you, because they say to themselves, I have WordPress and I need a WordPress professional, but there's a much larger segment Um that defines themselves in terms of the challenges that they have. You know, they want to grow their online businesses, grow their, you know, websites, you know, uh, none of which they define through the lens specifically of WordPress. So I would really encourage our community to think about, you know, when we talk about WordPress growing be, be beyond where it is currently, um, a big part of that might not be focusing so hard on the fact that it's WordPress and more on the fact that it can provide, you know, foundation for amazing solutions. Absolutely. Because people are looking for solutions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, across the board. I mean, even uh, that's something that I've been preaching, even in terms of uh, selling WordPress products. I, I, I really would like to see more of that, and I think it certainly applies to consulting as well. Yeah, WordPress products are really tough in that um, often having been built by developers, um, they fall prey to the you know features, not benefits. Mm-hmm. This is what this amazing code will do in my plugin. <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. <laughs> Diane, maybe we could work on that a little. <laughs> yeah, we need to work on that. Um, I saw you giving advice to people actually in Postat Slack about that exact thing. So I appreciate you doing that. Uh, minute for minute, this has been an incredibly valuable podcast for me, hopefully for other people as well. We have bulldozed right past our timeline, but that's okay because I have a feeling some folks are still listening and still hanging on there with us. And I think it was super valuable. Uh, your book is Real World Freelancing, the No BS Survival Guide, realworldfreelancing.com. Where can they personally find you as well? You can find me at dianekinney.com. You can find me on Twitter, dkinney. And that's K-I-N-N-E-Y. Um, K-I-N-N-E-Y. And uh, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Go to postatus.com slash club to join Postatus. Uh, postatus.com to so just read up on stuff. And if you liked this podcast and others, go raise five stars on iTunes, all that good stuff. Thanks, everybody. 